You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm Nori's creative editor. Today I have with me Dr. Holly Jean Buck, back again so soon, Assistant Professor of Environment and Sustainability at the University of Buffalo, author of Ending Fossil Fuels, Why Net Zero is Not Enough, and uh, I cribbed this from your last appearance, most importantly, the co-host of the Carbon Removal Newsroom podcast, um, because it was so recent. Didn't we? J- it was the last week we spoke? Two weeks? Feels just like yesterday. Feels just like yesterday. We had talked in the aftermath of recording that podcast, so there's still much more to be said. What do you want to talk about today, Holly? What are we following up on? We're going to talk about capitalist realism and ontology and how they relate to carbon removal and climate action. I'm so excited to release a podcast called The Hauntologies of Carbon Removal or something like that. I don't think that combination of words has been said yet, essentially. All the discourse, a lot of it feels kind of exhausted. This feels somewhat new to me. It's probably been said on some corner of the internet that we're not hip enough to be in. Yeah, what's what's the hashtag we need to access that sort of highbrow leftist intellectual culture? Where do we go for that? It's secret. It's secret. We're just not invited yet. I feel like you would probably be invited. I don't know if I would get to be in the cool kids club just yet. Well, let's assume that someone knows nothing. They don't know who Mark Fisher is. They don't know what capitalist realism is. Why don't we start there and start working our way through? Yeah, well, I'll start with capitalist realism, I suppose, because that was his earlier book. I just reread uh, two of his books, Capitalist Realism and Ghosts of My Life, last week after speaking with you. So capitalist realism, and this is a quote from him, the widespread sense that not only is capitalism the only viable political and economic system, but also that it is now impossible to even imagine a coherent alternative to it. And so we've heard formulations of this a lot of places, right? It's it's kind of familiar. And so I was thinking about that with regards to climate change and how it intersects this capitalist realism. So on one hand, there's kind of these emergent forms of climate realism slash climate doomerism, you know, it's not realistic that we're going to mount an effective response to climate change. We can't imagine a response. We're just kind of stuck in this, <laughs> watching it play out. Because a lot of this is like the shift from being engaged or believing in something to being a spectator. This is something he writes a lot about. And on the other hand, there may be this emergent fossil realism, which is a line of thinking that like, It's unrealistic to think that we can imagine an alternative to fossil fuels. They're so embedded in our lives, in the financial system, in our social fabric that they can't be removed. And I don't think we're there, importantly, right now, but I could see this happening pretty soon. Would you consider it an example of fossil realism where we swap out the feedstocks of fossil fuels for something that's more renewable and society looks pretty much the same as it is now? We don't recognize what changes might be wrought by changing those feedstocks? Is that an example of this? I think that could be a form if it took place under the discourse that, you know, we can't get rid of any of this. So we're just going to kind of tweak it a little bit, make it a little bit less bad. The decarbonized fossil fuels imaginary. 
Is the mirror image of that also an example of fossil realism where it's too optimistic that it's hard to imagine we actually wouldn't face severe peril or doom? Maybe. I haven't thought about that yet. <laughs> this is all like, you know, thinking aloud in, in progress, right? I just think there's so many variants of realism abounding right now, and some of them are entirely inconsistent with one another, especially when it comes to carbon removal. We see a lot of this playing out. So with carbon removal, there's this kind of techno-economic realism, which is like carbon removal isn't realistic. It's not mature. It'll never be built at scale. It costs too much. It's magical thinking. Like we've heard those sort of critiques, right? And then those same people might have a sort of entrenched interests realism. So carbon removal could happen, but if it does, it's only by fossil fuel interests because they're so powerful, they own it, they're going to control it. You're not being realistic if you imagine some other formulation of it. Is this appendage of realism inherently a criticism of a way of thinking? Is there like a positive version of realism where you see things as they actually are? I think that, I mean, in this kind of post-truth moment, there's just all these different claims to reality that sometimes aren't very empirical and sometimes are at odds with each other. So you'll hear those sorts of realism, but then they might not be applied in the same way to full decarbonization. They'll say wind, water, and solar are totally realistic, but carbon removal not. So it's like a selective realism. I don't know what's going on with it. I'm trying to figure it out. Some of these, some of these just overlap in my brain in such a way that it makes it hard for me to parse a really discrete definition of this or a paradigmatic case, which very well could be a failure on my end more than that of the concept. But maybe if I get out of your way and you keep working through some of these ideas, maybe I'll latch onto it. Well, I think so. You know, there's all these contestations of what's realistic because a lot of the information we have comes from models. Those are kind of viewed as the the best the best basis for various claims, right? I saw a headline <laughs> the other day that's like we're all realists now, pointing to the geopolitical situation. I don't know how much we want to talk about that evolving tragedy. Today today's the morning of uh, <laughs> the February twenty fourth, which. Yeah. Russia invading Ukraine. Should we do the show? Does it make sense to do it? Are we distracted? But anyways, geopolitical discussion is always welcome here. It impacts everything that we do. So please continue. Well, I think that we have sometimes a broader failure to draw lessons from what's going on in the world beyond where we are. Because a lot of us who are activists may be engaged with, you know, a community scale, a local scale, thinking about what's happening where we are, in the places we care about. And, you know, we maybe we work from decarbonization on that scale out. But I'm just thinking about the past decade of authoritarian consolidation in a lot of places and different movements against that the Arab Spring, but also in other places, and how those, you know, are faring, you know, a decade on. So there's these geopolitical realities where a lot of places have trended more authoritarian. 
we've seen kind of the promises of globalization we might have felt a decade ago kind of evaporate, I think. Now we're in this kind of post-globalization moment, right? And so we haven't really integrated all of that into climate strategy. So thinking about climate is usually proceeding along local lines, looking at, you know, state level action, smaller scale action. And when when we do talk about the global context, we talk about things like solidarity, about climate justice, climate finance for developing nations, all of which are important. But kind of the theory of change of the climate movement seems to be kind of these mass mobilizations or these protests that might shift government And yet those strategies haven't failed in a lot of places and that they haven't worked. (laughs) They've failed in many nations in terms of delivering change and democracy. So like there's a tension there. Am I making sense? I think so. Um, If I read it back to you, you can tell me if I've understood you at least partially that great power politics do not seem to play a part in many people's carbon removal imaginaries. Yeah, I mean, climate action generally, but we could also talk about, you know, the geopolitics of carbon removal and what it means for carbon removal specifically, because we are imagining these kind of global markets and, you know, stuff that would come out of this lineage of kind of globalist thinking, you know, that was kind of set in the in the 90s, really, and kind of the Rio framework about sustainable development and how we think about cooperation and and stuff like that. And so carbon removal gets integrated into that and in, in how we imagine it taking place in terms of, you know, nations being able to exchange emissions and removals through some kind of global scheme where there's no corruption or the corruption is minimal enough that the thing can keep working with some legitimacy, right? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot today, too, especially in the context of Germany's reticence to sanction Russia as readily as other NATO powers because of the natural gas connections. There is a 19th century classical liberal free trade economist named Frederick Bastiat. You ever come across his stuff? Remotely, but I'm not an expert. <laughs> he's, a, he's a libertarian favorite and has a lot of uh, quite useful thought experiments for explaining microeconomics. But I believe it's attributed to him of if goods don't cross borders, armies will. And that's a famous argument for free trade, right? You're unlikely to fight someone that you're trading with and you're both mutually benefiting. But then you wonder, in the case of a love Russia and Germany, this might have prevented a more united front earlier because of their dependence through trade. It almost made me understand the autarkic economic models of you do everything yourself so that you're not dependent upon outsiders in case something bad happens. So that's one of those lessons that I've been thinking about today. I'm not sure how relevant this is to you, but certainly geopolitical in nature. Well, I've been thinking about how much these net zero schemes depend on all of this because most countries, I mean, some countries are expecting to fulfill all of their carbon removal needs within their own borders, but then it really favors you know, a country like the US that has a large landmass or or whatever some countries like Switzerland are looking to procure abroad right and most countries haven't figured it out granted they kind of leave this blank so far in the first versions of their long-term strategies 
But there is a dimension of this where geopolitically countries with certain geographic attributes would be favored. And no country that I know of is really planning to kind of overproduce removals and sell them like explicitly. So I don't even know how all of this is going to work, but. I don't know if you heard the recent show we did with Alden and Paul. Did you hear that one? Yeah, well, I, I heard about mercantilism, right? Mercantilism, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And them also being worried about export controls for carbon removals being a thing in the future where those are not traded internationally. Yeah, well, I mean, it would make sense too, I think, for that to be the case. But yeah. That changes the equation. Well, should we talk about how haunted carbon removal is? I really want to name, name the show The Hauntologies of Carbon Removal. Just because outside of that little weird aforementioned niche of the internet, this is our thing that we just did, (laughs) (laughs) which which makes me very happy. What is this term? I imagine for most people listening uh, who are not theory nerds, they don't know what a hauntology is. Where should they start? Well, you could start with Derrida, who was talking about Marx, but I'm just going to say, you know, give a kind of a shorter version. So Mark Fisher was also writing about this. And Hauntology has to do with the the agency of the virtual. So something that's acting without physically existing, kind of like a ghost. And people talk about finance, about capital. They don't have bodies, but they act on our world and produce effects. And you can think also when you go in the direction of carbon removal, thinking about the idea of overshoot, the various promises of emerging technologies, the models those are all acting also without physically existing. And so Fisher talks about two different directions in hauntology. One is visions from the past or the ways that people in the past imagined the future, that which is no longer but remains effective, that's still acting on us. And he talks about that which has not yet happened, but which is already effective. So different anticipations of the future. You know, how we imagine the future is already acting upon us, too. I think a good example, at least of the first kind of visions of the future from the past that never materialized yet still affect us. I think of maybe we talked about this last time, retrofuturism and basically visions from the Jetsons of this nuclear utopia with, with cheap, free, clean energy. If you played the Fallout games, they're essentially exactly this. Is that a good example of this? I think so. I mean, I think that's basically where the imagination of the future kind of stalled out. And so Fisher writes about this too, like kind of dating that <laughs> that halt, but it was probably starting in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And now the future is just kind of exhausted or slowly canceled. What were other visions of the future in the past that never materialized after that? Suspect flower powers, vision of the future, I mean, the cliche, I think it was probably from Hunter S. Thompson, that the hippie movement crested at Altamont when Hell's Angels are beating up people and they killed a guy at the Rolling Stones concert, right? And then it's like heroin. It's no longer LSD and flower power. It's hard drugs and needles and scary things. I don't know. Is that a failure? Is that a hauntology there? Yeah, I think so. At least that's the one I've been thinking a lot about, too, as I've been thinking about environmentalism specifically. But yeah, as Thompson wrote, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west and with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high watermark, that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back and kind of 
Did you just look that up or did you have that in your head? No, it's in my notes for this piece. I was going to try to work it in somewhere. Oh, what? I must have missed that. That's that's hilarious. Maybe I saw that and just seeped into my subconscious then. I don't know. So yeah, this this vision of the future where uh, I think of the 60s, I think of like a back to the earth kind of small communitarian living rejection of white bread and modern technology and a crunchier version. That's sort of the stereotype of hippies. And for whatever reason, that that never showed up. And yet it still acts upon our culture very strongly and is a massive archetype and reference point. Yeah, well, I think that's what I think is going on with carbon removal. I think it's haunted by boomer environmentalism. That it, I mean, climate action generally, it's haunted by this previous generation's dreams of what a good environmental future would look like. So that's, you know, focused on the individual consumer. It has this individual subjectivity kind of there's a threat of self-development and self-actualization also present in the psychedelic movement, which I think is wrapped up in this. But it's it's kind of, you know, it's anti-modern in a way. It's local, there's folk politics, it's small scale, small is beautiful, and kind of this rural slash suburban idyllic thing. And it also, you know, upholds this nature society or, you know, natural artificial binary. And so what good environmental future is that looking towards? It's like a little bit green consumerists, local food. It's not industrial. It's not really urbanized. It's kind of village scale and inflected by communes, even though communes failed. So that's kind of the the vibe that's still haunting our imagination of like the environmental future, even today. And it's impacting carbon removal, I think. It's fascinating to make that link because I think when people think of hippies, they think of a really strong collectivist vision for the future, but weren't they called the the me generation? And they're like, just drop out, just be a draft dodger individually, abandon your duties to your country or whatever, do whatever makes you happy, secede from civilization and do your own thing. And I think people attribute that start of a really strong individualist consumer culture with hippies. I don't know. I know that's a thesis at least. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, well, I I think so. I had the misfortune to pick up a copy of On the Road last night. It was the worst book I've ever read. I don't remember reading it that way the first time, but last night, I mean, it was just totally this individual protagonist with no regard for anybody but himself. I'm trying to remember any relationship that happens. I guess there was a couple with, I forget their made up names and who they stand for. But they're like, we're going to Mexico now. Oh, now we're in Denver. Oh, we met so-and-so and we did this. Well, I have a hard time. I think I've read that book like twice. I don't even remember what happens really. Maybe that's a good sign that it isn't a great book. It's a terrible book. But I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find anything collectivist in there, I think. Oh, or this is this like false notion of community where I don't know, as you get older, I find the number of people, I used to think I had a circle of friends that were really tight. And I keep in touch with functionally like four of them. I used to think there was a couple dozen people that cared if I lived or died or that we were tight. And now that there's no reason for us to interact on a regular basis beyond proximity, like we once had, you're like, oh, that wasn't actually like a strong collective unit. That was just people who were near each other and for convenience sake had relationships together. That strikes me as like on the road. They're just people who party together and travel together seemingly for the most part. Yeah. Wow. We just ruined that book. 
and the, <laughs> the beats, the hippies, we threw them all under the bus. Sorry, guys. Yeah, but I mean, in some ways, they threw under us under the bus because we can't like make progress because we're haunted by their ideas. So it's fair. I certainly am. I I mean, we talked about this last time. I think even privately, I've, I've mentioned that I feel either called. I mean, Nori Nori too is very much a commodity market centric. That's global. That's at scale. Personally, I feel called to lots of crafty small scale things. I would probably live out in the countryside if I really could. Uh, I recognize in some ways that might be an abandonment of duties I have to the larger society of opting out of intellectual combat for things that might be right, of making peace. It's almost like a doomer attitude. And once you get out into the country, why not just be a prepper? Why not just, you know, go off the grid entirely and secede from civilization? Is that, am I haunted essentially? Yeah, but you know, it's not going to work. No, but I started thinking, okay, is this really a fair critique? Because don't we now have kind of a new urban intersectional environmentalism that's like city-centered, like let's build livable cities and let's center justice and frontline communities. And people actually care about environmental justice in a way that I think maybe even five years ago, it wasn't front of mind for, for environmental organizations maybe. And so I do think that there are new movements and a new focus that is remaking established environmental NGOs and policy. And probably environmental justice is the biggest thing to shake up environmentalism in decades. But then I thought, okay, but does it have a different vision of the good future? And I'm not sure. This is like where I'm conflicted. Is the framing of this being between an, a truly individualistic or collectivistic ethos, is that the correct correct dialectic to be setting up here? Do you think, are you trying to pose them as being a viable collectivistic alternative? Well, I'm just trying to figure out if, you know, the dominant vision of what we are striving towards in terms of the future environment has changed at all, if we're still in kind of what the boomers imagined is the ideal way to live on earth. You're wondering if the environmental justice community is going down a similar path as flower power in the boomer politics. There's a few different possibilities here. One is that there is a new vision of a specific environmental good future that's animating people and building a cultural form. And my sense of that is just off. It's also possible, though, I think that not enough funding and resources have actually flowed to environmental justice groups and groups led by youth or indigenous people or people of color. So I still think most of these groups are under-resourced and often in a defensive position in terms of fighting existing and upcoming polluting infrastructure. So they're what limited resources they have often go towards defense rather than detailing, you know, some other cultural imaginary of what they're working towards. I mean, generally, it's been like artists in society that have a lot of, you know, capital, right, and extra time that that go to produce these sorts of imaginaries. So that's one one question I have. But I also think that maybe the funding that does go to these groups and communities is controlled by philanthropies at foundations made up of boomer environmentalists. And so that might actually act on 
the cultural production in subtle ways. Well, there's a lot for me to chew on there. <laughs> I sort of want to try an idea out on you. I mentioned recently, but I think I think you balked at it a little bit. Let me let me try and reformulate this and see if this is helpful or maybe just introduces some more entropy in here. I find a lot of the left-wing visions of the future to be sorry, this is already a thing, but if socialist realism weren't already an aesthetic movement that had a long lineage, we applied it here. A lot of the left-wing politics I I see are, um, a lot of them feel like the great society or the new deal sort of warmed over. Doesn't, I don't always feel like there's a lot new of new life breathed into that. I see some people that are genuinely communistic, like, like very comfortable with the excesses, one might say, of someone like Mao or Stalin. I don't see a lot of love for Tito or uh, I guess Chavez and Castro get some love sometimes too. But I don't see a lot of like genuinely new left-wing imaginaries. It seems like it's either social democracy like Europe or the New Deal and Great Society, or it's much more radical communism, which I find frankly terrifying. Are there actually new visions that are substantively different that break us out of a if you'll allow it, socialist realism? I mean, for me, the most interesting stuff might be in the realm of like Afrofuturism or indigenous science fiction or things that I I don't think have become really mainstream imaginaries yet, which I think is also kind of this resource question among the arts. Because, yeah, I think that right now the most identifiable vision of the future Um, that's been articulated is the Green New Deal. And that's something that a lot of kind of new intersectional environmentalist organizations are talking about, right? I think that that short film that has Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in it, you know, is like the the short form vision. Yeah, that one was very powerful use of uh, propaganda used in a neutral sense. Like it is a very effective mobilizing tool, I would say. It's a beautiful video. Yeah, but even now, I just feel like I, sh- I screened that with my students last semester and they they thought it was good, but they also thought it was lost already, like, you know, because of where we are with politics in the US and Joe Manchin and all the rest. And also most, they they hadn't seen it before either. So it was new for them, right? So it makes me wonder like how wide the Green New Deal imaginary actually went. Did they concur that it was cringe or based? (laughs) I think think based (laughs) if they had to pick one. They didn't Uh, find it cringe. They just find it kind of sad because they could see that we talked a lot about the infrastructure bill and build back better and stuff over the last semester as all of that was playing out and they just felt sad, right? Yeah. And that one, I mean, it's right in the name, right? Are we haunted by the New Deal? It's it's almost inherently backward looking, which might be comforting. It also gives it a strong continuity in American politics. There's good reasons, I think, for doing so, but it doesn't make me think towards the the future as much. Right. Um, I mean, that's the point, right? It is sort of leaning into that really strongly and saying like, we've done this before. Here's a new version of it with different goals and it's going to work. And it's supposed to be comforting rather than looking like some scary new form of socialism, maybe. Yeah, I think that's true. But I mean, it kind of goes back to what Mark Fisher was writing about more broadly is just this 
exhaustion where new things are not really being generated. And so the environment is just one more instance of that. As he writes, we remain trapped in the 20th century. The slow cancellation of the future has been accompanied by a deflation of expectations. Is that just what doomerism is at this point? Is that the clearest example? I think that leads to the the doomerism, but he makes a really interesting observation about it, which is that, and I quote, environmental catastrophe provides what a political unconscious totally colonized by neoliberalism cannot, an image of life after capitalism. Because you know there's some people who are kind of seeking this and looking forward to it, right? And I was always trying to like understand why that was the case. And I think that's why I think he explained it. It's just easier to imagine doom than actually like transforming into something else. It's capitalist. I frankly have a really strong problem doing this too. We talked about this last time, but a world where prices are not nearly as important or private property doesn't matter as much. I think a lot of those institutions, I have a hard time imagining what the world would look like. Or if I do imagine them, it doesn't look that good to me. It looks more anarchic and not anarchic in a self-organizing, beautiful grassroots kind of way. It looks more like Mad Max or Walking Dead or something scary. But I'm open to that being a failure of my intellect and not one of anything else. You didn't watch Star Trek The Next Generation when you were a kid? No, but Star Star Trek is, is like classically the like one of those like left-wing science fiction where basically like all of matter can be transformed into anything else, right? There's, we've gotten rid of scarcity and we have like one world government, right? Yeah, it's a post-scarcity society. I think capitalism only, only makes sense as a way of addressing scarcity, like prices and property are important for reasons of scarcity. I realize what I just said is such a thing to lob at you that you might reject all of those claims I just made. <laughs> But uh, if you live in a post-scarcity society, I don't don't even know if those things are important anymore. How how could they be? Is that a possible uh, imaginary? I mean, that was the whole like zeitgeist movie series, right? Where you like a resource-based economy, like going beyond scarcity. Is that something that left-wing people should investigate? I find the writing in that direction interesting and the post-work stuff too. I mean, I think it goes together. And it goes also with like solar power, right? I mean... There's like this thread of like abundance there. Yeah. I've always wondered to what degree left-wing people are fond of saying that wage labor is necessary for capitalism. And I wonder what it would look like if you did have true independence of people where they could actually choose whether or not to work and what that would result in. Most people think it would lead to some sort of socialism just naturally in that sort of dialectical materialist kind of way. But I could also see it just leading to people with super high wages who still love to live in a high consumption <laughs> private property world. Or maybe maybe I'm speculating way too far afield. I mean, I think people are motivated by different things. You have haunting number three, which we haven't done yet. Do you want to launch into that? Yeah, so this is speculative. So there's a sense of you know being haunted by events that had not actually happened, by futures that failed to materialize and and are still spectral. You know, in a sense, we're haunted by rumor rumor environmentalism, right? But I also think that in the future, we may be haunted by carbon removal in that way, in that future people may know that we could have organized to put carbon back in its place, but didn't. We failed at geospheric return. They'll look back at like our 
archived websites of carbon removal startups and just be like, oh, that was that was quaint, but those people, you know. <laughs> so that'll be really sad in in some ways. If we fail, there'll be a melancholic archaeology department looking back through these failed carbon removal imaginaries from startups, essentially. Yeah, or from, you know, whatever cultural forms we have about it, which is not many. I don't know. I walked down Abbott Kinney yesterday and saw a bunch of writing about regenerative this and that on shop windows. But like, that's that's what we've got in terms of cultural forms. We've got like this capitalist version of regeneration that's like embedded in products and like a lifestyle brand or something. We don't really have cultural forms of around carbon removal yet, although we could in the future. There's lots of like, I I mean, I look back at kind of the choice to pursue petroleum rather than biomaterials, you know, in in the 30s and 40s. And I feel sad about that. So I'm, I'm haunted by the choices then. I think it'll be a similar thing. You need an exorcism of chemergy. Yeah. That it sounds like you need. <laughs> yeah. I'm so fascinated by the fact that you locate this future in art. Um, mostly because given your intellectual heritage, I, I associate you probably somewhat appropriately as a materialist. Art does not seem to be operating on that same kind of plane. Or maybe that's just a superficial reading of your tradition. No, I, th- I actually think it's central. I, I mean, I think that carbon removal and you know climate action will fail without cultural forms, cultural imaginaries. Sorry, I keep using that word, <laughs> but you know, kind of a science and technology studies term. But ideas about what a good future is, what our place in it is, what we have to do, it'll fail without that because. It's such a big project that it needs broad social support. I've read a fair amount of indigenous horror fiction recently, which I find a fascinating genre. I don't know Afrofuturism as well, but are there other movements like this or places people could start to read, listen to that might give them something useful in, in the tank? Oh, wow. Look, I just used a fossil fuel idiom. Wow. <laughs> I'll have to look up some things and put some links in. Nothing top of mind. Yeah, I know. Uh, I saw Grist was running a contest for cultural work like this too. Yeah, people like are on the hunt for it. That's the kind of interesting thing, like within design or speculative architecture or various sorts of domains, people are actively searching out visions of a livable future. It's kind of interesting that like you have to hunt so hard. <laughs> What motivates you? Is there a vision that makes you keep working on this rather than doing something else with your time? Yeah, well, I mean, I think carbon removal is possible. I also think phase out is possible, but I'm having like a longer term horizon. Like I'm not assuming that I'm going to be around to see either of those two things. But it's more about like, how do you put the conditions in place? It's more of an obligation than anything else. You don't think you're going to be alive in 2100? Aren't we all going to be immortal at that point? I'm okay with like living out my natural lifespan. I'm not really looking to be an H plus or whatever. Oh God. What is H plus? Is that a, oh, human plus? Is that what they're calling it? Sure. Isn't that like the shorthand for the whole life extension deal? I'm not up on that. 
it creeps me out because I know that the autocrats are going to have it before the rest of us. And it all seems like a bad idea then. I wonder, I wonder what changes if someone lives forever, because it could make them more and more avaricious and horrible. But I think if you weren't going to be like, well, I'm going to be dead. So I don't really care. Maybe it makes people think in a more longer term fashion. If they have to be around. Yeah. Maybe they'll like carbon removal better. If they got to stay here, if they're not just going to die, then maybe so. I have no idea though. I don't feel like I'm intellectually prepared to grapple with that future. That surely must happen this century though, right? Like that's going to happen in tandem with carbon removal. Yeah, no, that's true. I think there's going to be big advances. Yeah, there's going to be what general AI. There's going to be (laughs) people living beyond 100 as a regular course of action. There's going to be large-scale carbon removal. What other things are going to interact with this? Climate change. (laughs) Uh, I I thought we were just fantasizing now. And you got to bring us down? Well, no, I mean, I I really wish there was more analysis of how climate change will impact soil carbon and forests and all the rest. I mean, we kind of know, but I feel like it could be more prominent than it is. Those concerns are big. I see many people talking about, well, the, the most critical take that I've seen on it is that we shouldn't bother with any ecological storage at all, because at the rate it's warming, we're not going to stop it. And all of us can get released all over again. And then we're in for a real hard time. Do you, do you generally buy that? Or do you think that's overblown? No, maybe. I think it's a like a question that deserves peer-reviewed <laughs> research. Yeah. So you don't want to play the like speculate with Ross game with wild <laughs> visions into the future. I mean, there's there's some value in storing some carbon for the next 20 years with what we can do, but there's no value, I think, in like making your long-term strategy hinge on that. Like with the assumption that in 2050 and beyond, this is the this is the problem with a lot of these net zero strategies is they don't specify whether net zero is like a temporary state or something that's going to need to be maintained in perpetuity. If it's a stopgap, I think about it differently than if it's like a long-term plan. I've seen it pretty much as, or I see it as a chance to bias that time. So if it's going to get released in 20 years at current trajectories, then that's our window to get uh, lithospheric storage up and going or am I, am I right? Or, or am I using motivated reasoning because I work at Nori? No, I mean, that's how most people in the field see it, I think, but it hasn't filtered into kind of the long-term plans of countries is what I mean. Like the people in the field see it that way, but then the long-term strategies don't reflect people building a big geospheric return enterprise. They just say, and in 2050, our forest sink will be X amount of tons. And that's it. So we've yeah. still got some work to do. I don't know why that is. I think maybe companies or people making these net zero claims are hoping that someone pulls a rabbit out of their hat in time, or they just don't realize the extent to which they're on the hook for storage. Like this isn't a one-time storage event. And this is one of the, the benefits, at least as I see it, of tenure accounting, is that you're thinking in terms of how many years of storage you're doing here, it's not one and done. Yeah. And well, I think they're also hoping like the state will come in and <laughs> do a lot more, right? They're betting on it. But yet for the state to do that, the voters have to be on board. And so that's why the cultural piece is 
central. What do you think is the best piece of climate art that's been produced? I'm thinking, I mean, I'm thinking about all the climate fiction novels I've read. Maybe none I, that I've loved. I find most of them pretty didactic, I must say. It's almost like eating vegetables. I like eating vegetables, <laughs> but it feels like I'm doing homework. I've read nothing that was joyful for its own sake within the world of climate fiction or climate art. Yeah. I mean, the best stuff is probably not tagged as like climate, right? It's the climate's probably a background to a story about social relations. <laughs> you know, this may be a controversial opinion, but I actually did like Snowpiercer. I thought it was a kind of a fun movie too. Do people, what, do people just hate on it in your circles or what? I mean, I, I guess, you know, within the geoclique, it's ridiculed a bit. I guess the idea of a train just moving around the world constantly is a bit contrived, maybe. I think it's based on a graphic novel, though, right? I don't know. I thought it was it was more about class than geoengineering. It almost felt like geoengineering was in the background, and it was more about just a world in crisis and inequality. Yeah, I think that's what climate change is about. So I think that works of art get it that are going to be better than ones that don't interesting so, so okay so I, I read the movie correctly in your opinion yeah so in your opinion this isn't really about climate change it's about inequality well climate change is a byproduct of inequality and colonialism and so on so i think you know works of art that help you get to that are going to be more useful in building durable responses to climate change. Isn't it just about managing the byproducts of industrial emissions? I have a book on this. <laughs> yeah, It's called I, Hunting Fossil Fuels. <laughs> I said it with a straight face too. Maybe I should rewatch Snowpiercer. Geostorm though. I don't think that probably. Are you going to take a revisionist take on that one? I couldn't watch it. You couldn't watch it? No. Just horrified ex-ante or what? Some things you just know better than to do. <sighs> yeah, I uh, I watched it. I think I like Snowpiercer more. I thought it was all right. I understand why people don't like these, though. I imagine if they don't understand why they resent these movies consciously, it's probably because it introduces these concepts to the masses in ways that are too theatrical or dramatic or not nuanced enough. Is that it? Yeah, I think so. I haven't really figured out like what to do because you can't just wish a cultural movement out of thin air. So like, what are the conditions that produce interesting cultural movements, interesting visions of the future that also resonate in a wider way? I don't think anybody's figured out that recipe. And if they did, I wouldn't trust them because they were probably using it for nefarious ends. I don't know. Maybe there's some like programmers at Twitter that, that have figured this out. Um, but I, I think I, I would concentrate on few things. Maybe one is dealing with this problem of the platforms, which I <laughs> talk about at length in various places. But I think that one of the challenges is that the sort of brand building and influencing that's done on the platforms is narrow casting, not broadcasting. So it's like, you know, you have a niche audience, you build that up. You're not trying to reach 
multiple groups in the way that you need to for politics. And so that's a limitation. So I think dismantling the platforms we have and building platforms that work in different ways using different algorithms is kind of a climate objective, number one. I think that putting more funding into creative spaces, into the arts, into cultural production is actually a climate objective, number two. And so these things aren't thought of as like climate programs of action, but they should be. This is the first time I've heard anyone stake a claim that strong about it. It's not common. Yeah, no, I mean, the media ecology and the way it's biased towards a few huge tech companies that aren't making profits off of our division, that's like a big climate problem. Big everything problem. Yeah. It's weird that I am involved as I am in communications and marketing work since I find most of the platforms insufferable and don't really spend any time on them unless I have to. I find that they're, they're just, they just make me angry. That's what they're designed to do. They're hacking everybody's brain. All these people that are like, we only want natural solutions. We don't want these techno fixes. They're saying that on a platform that is like producing dopamine and weird chemical reactions in their brain. It's just very odd. I'm concerned about this. And so I think that, you know, I think that's one of the main spaces of focusing action right now. We're never going to get to this how Twitter broke science, are we? <laughs> Eventually. We just keep teasing it at the end of every show we do forever. Well, Holly, I think that's a good place to leave it. There's definitely more to be said here. I don't think we're going to hear from you for a while, probably, though, right? I don't know how long you're anticipating going on a podcasting hiatus. Do, do you happen to know? Are you able to say? I'll be on sabbatical probably till next January. Okay. Um, well, we'll miss you. Thanks for coming on and sharing your thoughts. Links to everything we talked about are a good chunk of which you can find in the show notes. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating and review on, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And thanks for listening. And uh, thanks again, Holly. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.